0: Amen. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've been going through 1 Thessalonians now uh, for some time. And it's been a delight to read this letter as so much of it reminds us of who we are and where we are in our state and time and this point in history. I would remind you that the Thessalonian church is not much different than ours. It's a church that is uh, relatively small, in obscurity, it's off by itself. It's a giving church, a church that uh, gladly gives when it can and gives more than it can often. Paul commends them saying that they gave out of their poverty. The Macedonian churches gave out of their poverty, out of their uh, they didn't have it to give, but they gave it anyway. Um, this is a church that wanted quiet. It just wants to be left alone to worship the Lord and love its neighbors. It's a church that wants the government to leave it alone and remember what happens. Paul and Silas are there and they cause a stir because they're there. That's it. That's the only reason they cause a stir. They're there and they're talking about the gospel and people get mad and they come to, they flee at night. Paul and Silas are told run away and they run away. They flee. And the authorities drag Jason from his house and they bring him before the Roman leaders, the tribunals or whatever, and they, uh, they make him pay a fee for being a Christian. They call it a guarantee. They say, we just want to guarantee that you're not going to cause a disturbance. But they make him pay a fee and he has to pay money to, to be left alone as a Christian. It's like, uh, what the mafia does, like we're gonna, we're gonna protection money, right? Like that's that's what they do, and so it's like we won't kill you if you pay us a fee. So he pays a fee, and they pay a fee, and they try their best to worship the Lord in quiet and peace, and to live a peaceful life. Very much, very much where we are as a culture and as a world, and as as Christians, we're just striving to worship the Lord with all that we are. And sometimes it bothers people around us. Indeed, it should. Um, And so, this is a simple church. And it's very much uh, close to my heart to read this because it is very much what we have, uh, what Sovereign Grace has has kind of become, is this kind of church, a small, quiet, loving community that uh, strives very hard to know Jesus together. And has all kinds of things and but is real it is a real place with real people um, that might be worth more than all the buildings and uh, trappings that this world could possibly offer so first Thessalonians chapter four we'll read verses one through eight and then we're going to jump back and look at verses 11 through 13 real quickly just to get our bearings so has been a month. We took a month off in December for Advent, so it's been over a month since we've been in First Thessalonians. So just to get our bearings, we'll drop back a little bit. But Verses 1-8 through 8 of chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in the holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. May God add his blessing in the reading and hearing of his Word. Now, just real quick, jump back up to chapter 3, verse 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. <laughs> so, Paul ends chapter three with this prayer <clears throat> that he's explaining who, what he's praying for, and and who he longs for us to be, who he longs for the Thessalonians to be. <clears throat> and so he just look at this prayer with me real quickly. He says, "Now may our God and Father." Himself and our Lord direct our way to you. So first, he's, he's expressing longing to be with them. We've seen this all through the book, chapter 1, 2, and 3. He longs to be with his people. And as a pastor, I can I can relate to this. This is true. I long to be with you. When I am gone, on vacation even, even when I'm with my family on vacation, I want to be back here. I want to be with you. I really... Weston sent me the songs that he was doing last week and I was like, "Man, I want to sing those. I want to be there with them. Those are all the good ones. He picked all the good songs." And so, I was like, "I want to sing all those." And Dad was preaching. And I was like, "That's going to be great." And Andrew was doing the prayer time. And I was like, "I want to be here with you." And and so this resonates with me a lot as a pastor. This is this is natural. I just want you to know that I've never met a well, never met a good pastor who Wants who does not want to be with his church, with his people, and Paul is no exception. He is longing to be with them. <clears throat> he is longing to be with them in this uh, in this <clears throat> thing, and he prays for them here. <clears throat> Pardon me, that they would that God would make a way for him to come back. And then in verse twelve, he says, "And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all." One of the marks of Christianity is that you love. And not just uh, simple affection, but love is in give of yourself to people who cannot return it. Giving of yourself to people who cannot return it. The love of Christ that was given for you. There is no way for you to return salvation to God. There is no way for you to give him back salvation. And Paul prays that you would have agape love for each other and for everyone. Indeed, that's the mark of a Christian. The world can't do this. They can't. They try and they can't. They try to do altruistic things, but they can't. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. The scripture is clear that this is a mark of Christianity. It's only done in Jesus Christ living through somebody else. So Paul says, I pray that you would abound in love. That you would abound in love to everybody. And second, that he would establish your hearts. Look at this. In verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holy. That's what, That's how it reads. It reads that he would establish your hearts as blameless and holy. Two descriptors of who you are. So this is something done by God in you establishing your hearts as blameless and holy. This is done by God to you when you believe in. In Christ, he does this work, that this is something he does. He establishes it in you. And he says, before our God. So you are blameless and holy for what? Before God. So when you stand in judgment before God, what he looks at and sees in you is Jesus Christ's righteousness. That's this first part. This prayer for you is that you would abound in love, the love of Jesus Christ that comes through him, that the spirit then works out in you and that you would be established in blamelessness and holiness. That those two things, blamelessness before God, that that God can't look at you and say you are guilty because you are now blameless in Jesus Christ and you are holy. You are holy. You are made holy. Holy, set apart, distinct, different, whatever phrase you want to use, sanctified, you are made holy. So without sin before God, you stand in his presence because you wear the robes of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing to get here. This is, this is the prayer for you. And I'm, I'm leading up to something here because there's, there's some things we're going to deal with in chapter four that require you to work, require you to do something. And so don't think that I'm giving you an excuse, but you need to get the foundation in this prayer first, that he establishes these things in you, blamelessness and holiness. He works in you, he changes you. He has justified you, he has rescued you, and he is sanctifying you on this earth while you walk. And he will glorify you. And indeed, in God's economy, it's done. In God's economy, it's done because God is eternal, which doesn't mean timeless, but rather means outside of time. He is eternal. And so in his economy, all of this is done. You stand before him blameless and secure now. Yet, we are temporal beings and God has given us the grace of growing slowly and being made holy slowly. So this takes time. And I would would contend that Paul is going to tell us here in a minute that this also takes work and delightful, joyful work. But let's grab this prayer first, that he's praying that we would love one another and others, that we would be holy and blameless. Now we see this last portion of chapter chapter 3, verse 13. Blameless before our God and Father. When? at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So these things are going to happen to us in a temporal manner. Now, as we walk, until Jesus returns. Now, there's two things I want you to grab hold of just as an aside. This has nothing to do with what chapter 4 dives into. Well, it has something to do with it because it's in the book. But it, it, is, it is just two things to delight in. First, Delight in the fact that God is actively moving now. He's actively moving now. He's not waiting till the very end. He's actively, he's establishing your heart in blamelessness and holiness now. We're, we're not abandoned. We're not by ourselves. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned. That no one likes to be in the place where they say, I know he hasn't abandoned me. Everyone likes to be in the place where they say, I knew he didn't abandon me. We always want to be in the spot where we look back and go, God is so good. He, he never abandoned me. Look at what he has done for me now. And these are the results. But none of us like being in the place or particularly enjoy being in the place of suffering or struggle to get to the I knew he didn't abandon me. Right? But what does the scripture call us to? It calls us to the I know he hasn't abandoned me. And that's what Paul is reminding us here. Jesus is coming. That's the first thing to take delight in, that God is not done working. Second thing to take delight in is that he's coming. He's coming. And I don't mean some ethereal, distant, metaphorical like he came in my heart. No. I mean, he's coming back physically. The Bible is crazy. Have you ever read this whole book? It's insane. The end of the book ends with him coming on clouds, on a horse, on fire, with a name written on his thigh and a sword coming out of his mouth. This is a crazy book. But it's true. So own your crazy. Own it. He's coming back. You know why Christians can laugh in the face of war? Because they're not always going to laugh. They're not always going to live. They're not going to be here. The war is not always going to be the case. The Ukraine war will end. It will end. It will either end on this earth before Jesus comes back or when he comes back, he's going to end it all the death and destruction we see will be over. Every tear will be dry. Every weapon of war will be destroyed. And the end of the book, oh, good grief, this isn't. In the end of the book, there's a mountain and there's an army, a sea, a sea of adversaries. And Jesus comes down and lands on the mountain. You know how long the battle lasts? It doesn't. It's over. He lands and it's done. He, they, there's not a war. There's not a fight. The masses gather against him, and he lands, and they all bow. It's like when they came to arrest him in the garden. We got a little picture of it. They come to arrest him in the Gospel of John, and they walk up, and he says, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus. And he goes, I am he, and they fall down to the ground. And then he like negotiates kindly. Hey, let all these brothers go, and I'll come with you. <laughs> like, like, who do you I said, who do you seek? Said, Jesus. You got to imagine one guard was like, can we get up now? There's, it's just, it's over. That is our Lord. That is our master and how gracious he is to wait. Do not think that the Lord is slow in fulfilling his promise, but he is patient. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is beautiful and powerful. Now, chapter four. Finally then, I love Paul. He says, finally, then, and goes on for two more chapters, makes me feel good about sermons. So he says, finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Now, in our world right now, there tend to be two, uh, two errors in this regard. There's there's the one of what we're going to talk about today. There's one error that's a theological error in which they say God has done the work. He has done the effort. He has done all the sanctification, and justification, that part they get right. And then they say, therefore, we don't have to do anything and we can do exactly what we want as long as we admit that we're wretches and we're uh, sorry sinners. As long as we admit this, then we can do whatever we want and just as long as we feel bad about it. I just want to say that that's an awful way to live. That's an awful way to live. Practically, it's horrible. And I know a man who who has done this, who has said that he, uh, he can do whatever he wants, that the Lord eternally sanctified him and eternally justified him and that he is therefore eternally secure and he does not need to pursue any kind of holiness or righteousness. Instead, as long as he feels bad about it, he's good. Now, he wouldn't say as long as he feels bad about it, he's good. He would just harp on the first part and hope you didn't ask him about sin. But this is an abomination to the Lord. It's not pleasing. It grieves the heart of the Spirit. We know this from the Scripture. You grieve the Holy Spirit when you do these things. That when you abide in sin, you spit on the cross of Jesus Christ yet again. You, according to Hebrews, are crucifying him twice. That this is awful. And that it is hateful to the Lord. So that's one error. The other error is the opposite extreme, the extreme that says, uh, well, God kind of saved me, but he doesn't do anything. He's not, he's savior, but not Lord. That goofy remark. Um, he's savior and he doesn't do anything. He just kind of saves me and then leaves me off to myself. So I have to do everything myself. So they white knuckle their faith. And instead of trusting in the grace of God, what we saw in chapter 3, verse 11 through 13, instead of trusting in God's establishing of our blamelessness and holiness, they grab hold of life and they try their best to do everything and then they get mad at God because they can't. So we got those two extremes. And this morning, I want to do what so often we have to do and what Paul does, which is shove both extremes to the right place. So finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you. This is an urgent thing. It's an exhortation. So an exhortation, as you know in Scripture, the word urge is the word exhort. Literally, it's exhortation. So we give you this exhortation. The word exhortation is a command that is based on a previously established truth. So the previously established truth is what we saw in chapter 11 through 13, that God is the one who establishes your hearts. God is the one who gives you blamelessness and holiness. That God is the one who does that work. So that's the previously established truth. And he says, we exhort you then, because of that, we exhort you then, brothers. Just pause. Pause. And recognize something here. This is a family matter. This is a family matter. This is for the brothers in the church. Paul doesn't say, I exhort you then, students. He could have used that word. He doesn't say, I exhort you then, church at Thessalonica, as if he's somehow distant from them. No, he exhorts them, brothers. And that's because when you are pursuing holiness, it is not a lone wolf job. Christianity is not a lone wolf religion. You don't do this by yourself. You were brought into a family. And the great thing about a family is you don't get to pick it. Right? This is your family. You don't get to choose it. God chose it. You don't get to pick and choose who gets saved and who doesn't. Lord knows in seven years in Sovereign Grace, I don't get to pick who comes. I don't, I don't get to pick the team. God does it. So we see Family first. Listen, family is what he says. Remember, you are part of a larger family. You don't do this alone. Second thing to remember here is he is urging you in the Lord, in the Lord, that you have an audience in the Lord. Jesus Christ is the one who you look at. Jesus Christ is the one whom you are concerned with. And Jesus Christ is the binding agent in our family. He's the one who binds us together. He's the one who makes us family. So how should we treat each other the way Jesus treats us? If you ever struggle to treat somebody with kindness or love or to overlook a sin or to overlook a failure, just remember Jesus walked with Judas for three years knowing he was stealing from him and going to murder him. And then at the Passover feast... He hands him the honored position at the table. And does it in such a way that the disciples even after asking him are baffled as to which one it is that's going to betray him. Just remember that when you have a hard time dealing with that person that you that neighbor, that family member, that person you work with that you are urged as family in the Lord Jesus to live this way. And he says that you receive from us, that you, you, he urges that you receive from us. So Paul and Silas and Timothy all gave this to him. And then there's a, there's a segment here. There's a, in the Greek, there's an article in front of this next thing. How, the word how has an article in front of it. And that indicates that this is a block of teaching. That they have received. This was the central idea that they received. So at some point in time, Paul, Silas, and Timothy had both modeled this, as we saw earlier in the book, and they had taught it to them. So this holiness and this, what he's about to dive into, this blamelessness, this holiness to live a holy lifestyle, that has been taught to them specifically as a block, as an idea. So here it says, uh, that you receive from us, and I'm going to go ahead and put the the there just so that, you under, so that you grasp what he's getting at. That you receive from us the, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So this was part of the body of teaching that was given. And how were these things given? We see in chapter 1, verse 6, they were given through their living with them. Paul and uh, Silas lived with these people. They suffered with them. They walked life with them. They actually lived life in affliction and with conviction. So their lifestyle was lived with them. It wasn't a lecture. Paul didn't come in and set up a a pulpit like this and say, all right, everybody sit down. We're going to do synagogue style lecture. Now that happened. That happened occasionally, but he did it over lunch. He went to coffee with people he was in the marketplace with people talking to philosophers remember what we read in acts he's in the marketplace meeting people he's buying food and he's talking to people about jesus he's walking around with jason they're talk. i mean you can imagine them talking about art and hanging out they're they're talking about stuff that's going on in the world and- you know, Caesar's crazy. Yeah, I know he's crazy. And they're sitting down, they're solving, they're with all the deacons in the city, solving all the problems over coffee. Right? You know those people? They go to Red Top and they sit with their coffee and they solve all the world's problems before 5 a.m. in the morning. Early, early old people. Early old people. And they get up and they, they do that. That's what Paul's doing. He's with these people. He's, he's doing it through his life and living with them in affliction. And with conviction, he does it as a father with children. You know, the best times I teach my kids are when I'm playing with them. We have phrases we use at our house, right? Random phrases, like, why do you look at your neighbor's plate to see if they have enough? And what did God give you hands for? Well, to protect and serve others, right? We have these phrases we use, and my kids know them, and they'll spit them right back. Disobedience brings... Pain. See, he mumbled it right there. Pain. Like disobedience brings pain. Not necessarily for me, but just in general. Disobedience brings pain. Like this is these are things that we do as a family. These are things that we you know, this is living life together. The the most my children learn from me are when I'm sitting across from them playing with them. Now, I know that people get this mental image of pastors' families of like we're sitting around the table having, you know, devotions and I'm I'm preaching, and they're, they're, oh, Father. No, that's not how life works. That's not, I mean, that's barely how church works, right? So that's, that's not how life works in your home. So, no, we talk together. We pray together at night. We, we you know, if they're struggling with something, we'll have you talk to God about it. And they, it's normal life. That's how a father exhorts his children. You play with them. You love them. You do things with them. You spend time with them. That's how you... That's how you exhort your children. And Paul says, remember how I exhorted you as a father in chapter 2. He exhorted you as a father in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, literally, I exhorted you and charged you. In chapter 3, he gave them charges. He gives them instructions. He is concerned with their way of life. A brother who tells you or encourages you to do things that are hard is a good brother. A great brother is one who tells you to do things that are hard that he does right next to you. That he's doing right next to you. And when you go, it's hard, he goes, I know, I know. Let's keep going. That's community. And that's what Paul is exhorting them to here in these words. That's what he's doing. He is exhorting them to walk. They ought to walk in a manner to please God. God. So their audience is the Lord. Your audience is the Lord. You don't do this to please men. You do this to please God. And this is, this is not just the Thessalonians he says this to. He says this to everyone. All throughout the letters, Paul is going, your aim is to please the Lord. That's where you find joy. That's where you find sustenance. That's where you find life. You can see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 through 33. You can see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I'm just going to rattle a bunch off. So if you're taking notes, feel free to jot them down. If you lose me, um, I'll give them, you can come up and look at this later. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, we please God in our obedience. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, we see that was Paul's aim, to please God in Colossians 1 verse 10, we walk in a manner pleasing to him, bearing fruit in good works, increasing in the knowledge of Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1 through 3, it's to please God and live a quiet life. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 4, it's to please God and live a peaceful and quiet life. Right? We please God. God is the loud one. God is the loud one. Jesus Christ is the loud one. You are just a horn, and a great horn, a horn that he is pleased by, a horn that he delights in. You are the music that God makes on this earth, but it's God making the music, and how delightful it is to be it, to be the music, to be the one that he's playing. You please God. I was once asked, is God happy? I was in my, what we call caged Calvinist phase in college. I was asked, is God happy? If you don't know what caged Calvinist is, we can have a great conversation over lunch. It'll be funny. It'll be great. But uh, I was in that phase. Everybody who ever reads any reformed theology goes into that phase where you're angry about everything. And he asked me, is God happy? And I was confused. Because I thought, I was still wrestling with other things about God. I wasn't worried about his happiness. And then it hit me how often it says, my delight is in love, Lord. I am pleased in God's presence. I am a pleasure to his sight. He is, I'm the apple of his eye. He is, a, he is a pleased God. He is joyfully rejoicing over me. He sings songs over me. He delights in his people. Oh, the Lord takes great pleasure in the holiness of God of his people, and all of a sudden I was struck with, oh my goodness, God is happy. God is happy. He's happy, and he's happy about you. He's happy about me. So Paul says, this is how you ought to walk and to please God. This is the bulk of teaching, that you are to please God. He is the audience that you are aiming at. So how do we please God? Well, first, you have to jump to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that's what we saw in chapter 3, verse 11 through 13, right? He's the one who does the work. He gives you faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, right? And that faith is is a gift. It's not of works. You didn't do it. It's not of works that no one should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Like, no one gets to boast about faith. Faith is given to you. So you have faith. That's the foundation. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And a lot of people stop there and go, I've got faith, therefore I'm pleasing. No. No, you miss the joy. You miss the joy of this. If that's where you stop, you miss the joy. It's more than that. This is about living a life filled with the joy of holiness. We pursue holiness because it's where happiness is found. Because we're joyous. So we see this idea here in chapter four, verse one, that we are to walk in a manner that pleases God just as you are doing. I love that. It's Paul's encouragement to them is the same encouragement I would give to you. We see that you are doing it. I see that you're walking with the Lord. I see that you're striving to be holy. I see it and I know it and I'm proud of you. If no one's told you that, Hear your pastor say it. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for pursuing the Lord, for pressing into holiness, for looking at the world when it tells you there's other things you should be doing and going, No, I'm going to do this. Instead of compromising your values and morals, standing up for what's right and good and saying, I'm not going to take advantage of that. I'm going to do what's right. I'm proud of you for that. That's beautiful. And it's wonderful. And so Paul says, just as you were doing, do this more and more. Back to that Andrew Murray quote that we had earlier, may it never be said that I'm satisfied with where I am. May it never be said that I'm satisfied. But may I always long for more of Christ. May I always long to be more like Him. May it never be said that I'm satisfied with where I am. So he says here, That you do this more and more. In First Corinthians, or in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, he says, While we are on this earth, we make it our aim to please God. While you are here, you make it your aim to please God. That's what you do. That's what Christianity does. And why do we do this? Because knowing God is the greatest delight and the greatest joy. And if you can know him personally, and please Him. Is there a greater joy than that? No. I'm just going to go ahead and answer that for you. No. There's not. There is not. It is the supreme joy in life to please God. And we please God by walking in faith. This is a beautiful term, walking in faith, because it implies that you are doing something In the strength of something else, you are walking a physical act. There's a reason the Bible uses the term walk when it describes faith and when it describes the Christian life. It uses the term walk because it is a walk. I don't know if you've ever been on a long walk, like uphills and valleys and mountains, a hike. But it's hard, it's easy at first, it's a delight. In fact, I, I, would, I would paint this picture for you. Imagine there's a mountain in the distance. You see the mountain. It's beautiful. Sky around it is gorgeous. And so you decide, I'm going to walk up that mountain. And it's an easy, you know, it's not, a, it's not Everest. Like it's a, it's a mountain, you know, an American mountain. Nice size, good, but we can still fly over it. That kind of mountain, right? And so you start walking towards the mountain. And as you get closer and closer to the mountain, what happens? You see less and less of the mountain. And you start to climb the mountain, and you don't see any of the mountain. All you see is the dirt in front of you and trees everywhere. And it's at an incline. So it's hard work. And yes, there's beauty in the trees and the dirt. Don't get me wrong. God laid beauty out on the whole walk. He laid beauty on the whole walk. But as you get closer and closer to the mountaintop, it gets smaller and smaller and it feels less and less like a mountain and more and more like a trudge until you get to the top then you get to the top and you see and you go wow look at where I am and you see the things of God and this majesty and beauty before you and what's in the distance what's imagining you're imagining you just climbed a mountain what's in the distance Another mountain. And it's majestic and beautiful. Totally different than this one. All new, still a mountain. It's somehow the same and completely different. And, and before that mountain, there's the downside of this mountain. And the valley. And that's going to be an easier walk because it's down. But then you're going to have to walk across a field staring at a mountain for a long time. There's a reason the Bible uses the term walk. Because there are ups and downs. There are times when you can't see the sky. And you just have to keep going. And there are times when you're at the top and you see everything. And there are times when you're in the valley and you see everything looks monstrous and huge. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He is the good shepherd who's walking through the valley and the mountain and the mountaintop with you. He experiences every high and every low with you. There's a reason the Bible uses the term walk in faith, we walk in faith because it's something you do in the power of what has already been done in you. You do this in the power of what has already been done in you. Why can you overcome sin? Because it's already been overcome in you in Jesus Christ. He already defeated it. Why can you live a holy life? Because Jesus Christ has already done it for you. Why can you say no to the wrong things and yes to the right things and bring pleasure to God? Because you have trusted in Him and He has saved you and sanctified you and rescued you. And you are no longer like the Gentiles who live by their pleasures and their lusts. You are changed and redeemed and rescued. That's why we walk in faith. Even though our walk is not perfect, we still Walk in a manner pleasing to God. This is a mark of being a Christian. Simply read the books of James and 1 John, and you'll see this so clearly that we are different and we walk differently. These things proceed from a foundational understanding of faith, from a foundation of faith, but they still proceed. They still proceed. So yes, Christ saved you. Yes, Christ sanctified you. Eternally, you are those things. That's true. You are still called to walk. You are still called to pursue holiness. So as we approach this year, as we approach this year, run at Jesus. Climb mountains for him. Get to know him with everything you are. Read your Bible like crazy. Study the Word constantly. Talk to people about Jesus all the time. Crave to be around the community of faith. Crave to be around other Christians. Do it. Do what has already been done in you. And prove it's been done in you. What is it James says? You show me your faith by what you say. I'm going to show you by what I do. I will do it. Be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Just as you are doing, do so more and more. Holiness is an active pursuit on your part. Spiritual growth is an active pursuit on your part. It is done in conjunction and in tandem with the Holy Spirit moving inside you. Colossians chapter 3. You are being made new, present tense active, after the image of your creator. God is moving in you to make you new constantly, but you are also to pursue Christ, to throw off all that hinders, to run away from sin, to run towards holiness, to pursue what is good and right and just, and to do that. What does the Lord require of a man but that he acts justly and loves mercy? So we'll conclude. I had a whole lot more I wanted to say. So this is going to be a two-parter. And next week you'll get the second part and I'll have to move all my others another week. So he says here at the end, just as you're doing, do so more and more. And then finally, we're going to end at this verse. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Just stop there and hear what Paul is saying. These instructions to pursue holiness, to live a blameless lifestyle before the Lord, To pursue the pleasure of God. To pursue the pleasure of God. These instructions are given through Jesus Christ. There is not a greater authority. There is not a greater authority than this. There is no one who can tell you how to better live your life than this. There's no self-help book that is better for you. There's no psychological profiles that are better for you. There's no enneagrams that you can read that will make you feel better about this text. Jesus Christ is the chief authority, and these instructions have come through him. That's the first thing to recognize here. The second thing to recognize is that these came through Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who walks with you, who even in the face of death, knowing that he's going to resurrect Lazarus, weeps with, with Mary. He intertwines His emotions and heart with us. And this is the God that we serve, this unfathomable God, that we go, I don't know how this transcendent being who is beyond time and beyond the earth, who holds the stars in place, the earth is His footstool, you are a blip on the radar of time, and yet, He knows every hair on your hair and numbers them. That means he takes time to know you. This infinite God who could treat you like I do ants takes time to know you. What I mean by that is if you've ever seen an anthill, I don't care about those things. I want them out of my yard. I don't, if ants are going crazy fixing their anthill, my concern is that their hill is poisoned so they don't bite my children but God is concerned with you and you're smaller than an ant in comparison. And he's not just concerned with you, but he actually knows the hairs on your head. He knows how many there are. You know how specific that is? I mean, for some of us, it's getting less, but it's still specific, even with me, right? Like, he's still, that's a lot of hairs and he knows them all. You are stars in the sky. Stars in the sky is what he calls the descendants of Abraham who are descendants of promise, not of flesh. You ever go outside and look at the stars? Oh, I love living in Brazoria where there's not a ton of light pollution. There's still a little, but not a ton. And you can look up at the stars. And if you just sit out there for a while, how much more stars show up every few seconds? And God knows every single one. And there are some I can't even see that are beyond the grasp of my eyes. This God is transcendent and great and yet intimate and personal, calls himself a good shepherd, calls himself a mother for you. You know, the Bible says that he's a mother for you. That's odd for us to hear, isn't it? He nurses you. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing to think about. And that. And these instructions have come through. Through Jesus Christ, who has made God known. That we can know him. Everything in God is known in Jesus. There's a great poem. God is like Jesus all the way down. There's nothing in him that cannot be found in the one who, was, who came to lay his life down. For God is like Jesus all the way down. You can know God. And through him, he gave us instructions on how to please him, how to delight and how to live a full life. Oh, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. May we always be this way. Father, we pray that you would be delighted in us as we are in you. Lord, we love you. Oh, we love you. Let us see you for all that you are. Let us delight in you. And may there be great rejoicing as we know you more and more this year. Lord, we love you and trust you. Be glorified. Amen.